0: Dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. I think
1: it's quite safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-hearted. The Southerner who isn't convinced
0: of it is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. And ghosts can be very fierce and instructive.
1: They cast strange shadows. Hi everybody, my name is Tyler Lyle, and this is The Secret Lair. I found the little box where the sound loops are, so rest assured, I will play every sound loop that I have before this episode is over. Kidding, I am done now. Welcome to month two of The Secret Lair. If you haven't heard month one, uh, it's available on Bandcamp for download and streaming. This is episode two, The Haunted South. Nietzsche says, He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. And when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. I thought the subject of this month was The Haunted South. I thought I was squaring myself with history and identity. But the deeper I went, the more I realized how much shit I carry around with me that I never think about. Who we are has been decided on our behalf, not just by our parents, but by millennia of conflict and evolution and care. We are inheritors of a dusty old storage facility that we can't empty and we can't burn down for insurance money. My challenge today is to try and tackle some of that clutter. David Foster Wallace has this anecdote. An old fish comes up to two younger fish and says, How's the water today? One young fish looked to the other and said, What the hell is water? The point is that water is all around us. That's why it's hard to see. But unless we try and make sense of the mess, it'll never be anything but a burden. So today I'm dragging out a few things from my history in the haunted South. I'm making a mess so that I can make amends. Joan Didion says it this way, I think we are well advised to keep on nodding terms with the people that we used to be, whether we find them attractive company or not. Otherwise, they turn up unannounced and surprise us, come hammering on the mind's door at 4 a.m. of a bad night and demand to know who deserted them, who betrayed them, who is going to make amends. We forget all too soon the things we thought we could never forget. We forget the loves and the betrayals alike, forget what we whispered and what we screamed. We forget who we were. First, I think we should start with a ghost story. I lived in a house in the Ormwood Park neighborhood of Atlanta. The house was almost 100 years old. The floors creaked it was built on an old Civil War battlefield. I allowed for the possibility that maybe it might have some history, i.e. ghosts. Anyway, I studied comparative religion in college, and I kept all of my religious texts on the top of my bookshelf in the living room. And something strange started happening to my copy of the Quran kept falling on the floor. Now, I know that out of respect to tradition, the Quran is supposed to be shelved higher than other books, but I didn't do that. It shared space with the other scriptures. When it fell, sometimes I would try sandwiching it between two other books, uh, the Book of Common Prayer and the Rig Veda or the Nag Hammadi Library or the Analects of Confucius. But I would always return to find that the Quran had fallen on the floor with whatever books that I'd used to try and sandwich it in with. Uh, This happened six or seven times over the course of that year. I would wake up, go into the living room, and the Quran would be on the floor. I had no explanation whatsoever. Was there a ghost who was sensitive uh, to the teaching of Islam, who didn't like that it had to share space with the other scriptures, or maybe it was an intolerant ghost that had beef with Islam in the afterlife? Um, I also thought that maybe somebody was playing a very strange and elaborate prank on me. I had no Solution whatsoever. It took about six months for me to finally see it happen. Whenever I had band practice in the living room, the kick drum would scoot the Quran over, which was heavier than the other books around it, and finally it would fall. No ghosts. I loved that house and I loved that neighborhood. I got to fly into Atlanta a couple weeks ago to visit my family, who lives about an hour and a half west of Atlanta. But I also got to spend some time in my old neighborhood. And I have to say that I love flying into Atlanta. The city in the trees, they call it. It's nothing like flying into New York or L.A., the gargantuan scope of humanity. But in Atlanta, there's still a feeling that the trees are winning. New York's guiding spirit is the distilled concentration of humanity living on top of each other. I know the energy that people talk about when they talk about New York. It absorbs calamity and fear and love and desperation and doesn't slow down. It's the energy of the electricity of humans striving in such close quarters. L.A.'s guiding spirit is nature, the interplay of mountains and ocean and year-round perfect weather. If there were no people in New York, it would look like the rest of the eastern seaboard. But if there were no people in L.A., it would look like paradise. Atlanta's spirit, however, is a haunted one, the capital of the haunted south, a deeply dysfunctional and counterintuitive city. And I love Atlanta in a way that I could never love New York or L.A., I have deep roots there, which serve as a curse and a cure. It will always be a point of departure for me, and it will always be home. No matter how far away I go, or how much I despise parts of the haunted south, I will always carry it around as a contradiction to live with. First, a bit of background. The Lyle clan started in Scotland. Robert Lyle came over before the Revolutionary War, he settled in Georgia, and his sons headed west with a number of Scotch-Irish families in what was then the Muscogee Territory in what is now Carroll and Coweta Counties. For seven generations, my family has been in the same area. Many of them are buried in a cemetery in Carrollton, Georgia, that was partially moved about a decade ago when a Super Walmart needed more space. No joke. The ghost of slavery is still palpable somehow in the South. I remember driving past the church where a KKK rally was happening as a young boy. I remember hearing David Allen Coe say the N-word on local country radio. I remember kids at my high school flying Confederate flags from the backs of their pickup trucks. And I remember old people calling the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. In school, we read Joel Chandler Harris and Richard Wright and MLK, And we were all but assured that America had figured out its race problem, and now everything was fine so long as we followed the golden rule that we learned on Sundays at the Southern Baptist Church, which was, of course, the denomination that broke away from the Baptists because they were in favor of slavery. I was taught growing up on one hand that slavery and Jim Crow and segregation had all been wrong, obviously, but also that I should be proud of my heritage. No one questioned how these two things could both be true at the same time. To be proud was to stand behind history, to fight for those values, and to be ashamed was to grieve and mourn and apologize and reach out and attempt to move on. I think this selective memory and the double history has been the biggest reason why it's so difficult to put the ghost to rest in the South. James Baldwin says that people hold on to hate because they feel that when it's gone, they will have to deal with their pain. Though I remember a few instances of blatant racism, usually out in the rural area that I grew up in, I think that the real trouble is the deeper, more subtle, more institutional manifestations of this disparity of power. And I think that the bifurcation happened when the blatant racists had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids, and this dysfunction was perhaps explained away, but it was never settled. It wasn't eliminated at the source. The wound didn't get properly cleaned during the time after the Civil War because the conquered South just didn't want to deal with their pain. So you have this whole history of segregation and disenfranchisement and a federal housing act that made it impossible for black families to get loans. These are what Ta-Nehisi Coates calls the compounding moral debt to African Americans. Of course, I'd like to think of myself as a good humanist who reads the right books and marches against police brutality and is on the showing up for racial justice mailing list. But self-deception is a powerful enemy. My favorite Slovenian philosopher, Slavo Zizek, says that even when you get to the heart of the matter and you feel you are at the root of yourself, at your most honest and most impassioned inmost point, you're still lying to yourself. On one hand, this thought scares me a little bit. I want to be in control of myself. I want there to be a good team and a bad team, and I want to be on the good team. But on the other hand, the thought that we are always lying to ourselves no matter what can also be a freeing thought. It keeps us humble. It means that despite our best efforts, our bullshit may go all the way down to the root. There was an incident that happened last fall in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. I was walking with my wife, and four black kids around the age of 12 were shooting folded wads of paper at people with rubber bands. I got hit in the back of the neck and went over to talk to them. It was after midnight, and there was no reason for them to be out. But when I approached them, they avoided eye contact. I asked them who did it, and they laughed. I told them to stop and they started mocking me. I felt enraged and disrespected, and so I snapped at them and said I was about to call the cops. You and I both know why this is over the line. I was trying to wield power over someone as a white male adult, and I told four young black boys that I was about to call the cops. I realized the implication of my threat as soon as I said it, and I walked away. But the fact still remains that who I am and who I would like to think that I am are different people. There are parts of me that I do not like, which are informed in both directions by the haunted South, and that my desire to fix the world doesn't absolve me of the guilt that I still participate in it. Another thing that you learn in the South is original sin. I don't believe in original sin anymore. The thought that we could wash off all of our guilt in the same way that we used to ask Santa Claus for Christmas presents would be insulting to the idea of God. I think guilt is something to struggle with honestly and earnestly, not to come out clean, but to see clearly, not to be atoned, but to be atoning. I was building my playlist earlier today, and as an experiment, I put old R&B songs next to old country songs. When I placed Strange Fruit, which is a song about a black body rotting on a tree, against Sweet Home Alabama, I felt this rush of grief, like I'd stumbled onto something. Then I listened to No More Auction Block, and then I listened to Hank Williams Jr.'s A Country Boy Can Survive, and then I listened to A Change Is Gonna Come versus Alan Jackson's Way Down Yonder on the Chattahoochee. The songs from the civil rights had power. The old country songs were totally clueless. And it made me remember something about the night when the LAPD raided the Occupy LA camp at City Hall. There were six helicopters overhead with their spotlights trained on our group, and we were using the people's microphone to communicate. And one speaker shouted, we are not here to speak truth to power. We are not here to speak truth to power, the crowd echoed. We are here to speak truth to false power. We are here to speak truth to false power. And I knew what he meant in that moment. You can feel false power, and you can feel real power. Real power is spiritual authority. False power is the influence purchased by money and conquest. And it's embarrassingly simple that Nina Simone carries spiritual authority and Hank Williams Jr. does not. February is Black History Month, but these are also days of hostility and fear in the black community. I felt like it was time for me to revisit Baldwin and King and Simone Vey and ta Coates. They remind me of the generational consequences of our choices as a nation hundreds of years ago, that when you build a structure on a crumbling foundation, it is an impossible task to make it safe after the fact. I think about Atlanta a lot. I see the property values increase in my old Atlanta neighborhood, a neighborhood that was primarily African American and working class ten years ago. None of my old neighbors are still there. The block has been slowly cleared and renovated and sold to young families whose kids will go to the charter school, which is rated 10 out of 10, rather than the public King Middle School, which is underfunded and failing. Atlanta is ranked last in the nation in income inequality, on par with Nairobi, Kenya. This means high foreclosure rates and high crime. It will become two cities. In some ways, it always has been. You only need to look at the skyline from Kennesaw Mountain to see the echoes of the segregated South. In the areas from downtown to Buckhead, the traditionally white areas of town, you see skyscrapers in development. But South of downtown, you see nothing but trees and abandoned warehouses. I can't speak to the actual racist who harbors actual hatred for another person based solely on the color of his or her skin, but I can speak for myself a well-intentioned but frequently deluded or disillusioned Southern expatriate. I listened to King's I Have a Dream speech again recently, and I think that the first step to reassess our personhood is to sit silently in a room with the ghost of Christ and the ghost of slavery, the ghost of inequality, the ghost of the other, with the full measure of our guilt and our parents' guilt and our human guilt. I think that my response is to get very low to the ground and to stay there for a long time. It's an unsexy answer, but I think that grief is the only way forward. As an adult, I've lived outside of the South now longer than I've lived in it, but I still consider myself a Southern artist. My first experiences with transcendence happened not at church, but in my grandfather's field, the seedlings and the climbing vines and the rows in the dirt below that look like the rows of clouds above. My grandpa used to say, sing the song that brought you, and because that's where I most feel my connection to this earth, it's where I would one day like to return. Bob Dylan wrote a song about the haunted south through the lens of the most famous Atlanta bluesman, Willie McTell, that tells the story of the spiritual authority I was talking about earlier, that the letter of history may be written by false power, but the truth of history is written by those subjected to its stripes. And there ain't no one can sing the blues like blind Willie McTell. Have a great month. See you back here March 15th. Mm-hmm.
0: Seen the arrow. land is condemned all the way from new orleans to jerusalem i travel See them big plantations burning Hear the cracking of the wind Take us, Bill. Nobody can sing the blues like blind Willie McDill. There's a woman by the river with some fine young Dressed up like a squire, bootleg whiskey in his hand. There's a tale.
1: As a little bonus, and why not, uh, I want to share one more recording with you. This is a field recording of the Sarasota House of God. The track is called Walk With Me.